0: Welcome to the Bloomberg Law Podcast. I'm June Grosso. Every day we bring you insight and analysis into the most important legal news of the day. You can find more episodes of the Bloomberg Law Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and on Bloomberg.com slash podcasts. An FBI raid on his personal lawyer's office cut close to home for Donald Trump, prompting an angry reaction from the president at the White House last night at a meeting with military officials.
1: Why don't you just fire Mueller? You, Why don't I just Do fire Mueller? Fire well, I think it's a disgrace what's going on. We'll see what happens. But I think it's really a sad situation when you look at what happened. And many people have said you should fire him.
0: Joining me is Jimmy Garule, a professor at Notre Dame Law School. Jimmy, how big an escalation was this raid for the Justice Department?
1: Well, it's significant. There's no question about it. And first of all, it's very rare. It's quite unusual for the Department of Justice to authorize a search warrant of an attorney who is the legal representative of someone who is under investigation by the Department of Justice. So again, it's very rare.
0: It's rare, but this was done, from what we know, by the book?
1: Absolutely. There's no question about it. You know, first, I think it it, it speaks well of uh, of Special Counselor Mueller, because uh, he uh, apparently came across uh, evidence of of a potential crime, and he believed that 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 evidence was outside of the scope of his mandate uh, with respect to investigating the, uh, the Russia meddling in the 2016 election. And rather than investigating it himself, he brought it to the attention of the Deputy Attorney General, Rod Rosenstein. And it was Rod Rosenstein that referred the matter to the U.S. Attorney's Office in, in, in Manhattan. So it was actually the, uh, the uh, federal prosecutors in Manhattan that conducted the, the search warrant.
0: Does this say anything about Mueller making strategic moves to help preserve his investigation? Even if Trump removes him, might the U.S. Attorney in Manhattan be involved now?
1: Well, I think he's certainly very cognizant of, of, of his credibility and preserving his credibility, and that whatever he ultimately concludes, whether he decides that crimes have been committed or crimes have not been committed, um, the public is going to have to buy in on this, and that's going to turn in large part on whether or not uh, he has credibility with respect to the way that he's conducted his his investigation. And I think this actually weighs in favor of, of Mueller because it shows, again, that he's adhering very closely to his, to his mandate, the, the formal authority that he's been given, and he's not exceeding exceeding the bounds of, of that authority.
0: What does it tell you that Rod Rosenstein, who has been under so much pressure for so long from President Trump, and it seems as if, you know, we talk about Mueller being dismissed, and in that we always talk about Rod Rosenstein being dismissed. What right. does it tell you that he said, OK, we're going to take this and we're going to send this to the Southern District?
1: Well, what it tells me is that is that he's a prosecutor that's uh, that's adhering to the rule of law and that he's not. Uh... He's not capitulating to uh, to political pressure. So, despite the uh, the harsh criticisms by President Trump of Rosenstein in in in, in the public forum uh, aired publicly, uh, he's doing his job. And so, if he believes that there's evidence of a crime, then then he's investigating uh, that evidence rather than than kowtowing to uh, to political pressure by the president, and and he shouldn't do that.
0: So it seems as if, as from everything we've said and learned, that this is a separate investigation. But could there be information that is found in the attorney's office that helps Mueller?
1: There's, There's no question about it. And so I, I think that President Trump is vulnerable in, in, in two important ways. I mean, first, uh, with respect to the the, on, the the now ongoing investigation out of the Manhattan prosecutor's office regarding uh, Michael Cohen, certainly during that investigation they could uncover uh, evidence that implicates that is incriminating uh, of the president. And, and that's not far-fetched considering the fact that, the, that Cohen portrays himself, he's very proud of the fact that he's the, the so-called fixer for the president in terms of fixing any problems that, uh, that confront uh, President Trump. And so certainly there could be information discovered during that investigation that implicates the president. But perhaps even more, more dangerous in terms of exposing the president to even graver legal uh, jeopardy, and that is the president's reaction to all of this. Because if he overreacts and he fires Rosenstein, if he overreacts and he fires Mueller, and then we've got the Saturday Night Massacre situation being replayed uh, today, and that could result potentially in, uh, in impeachment efforts against the president.
0: Let's just discuss briefly a Saturday Night Massacre situation. How many people would he have to fire? Would he also have to fire the, the head of the FBI?
1: Well, he would start – if he wants to get rid of Mueller, uh, again, the the special counsel statute authorizes the deputy attorney general to uh, fire the special counsel for cause. And so that would be Rosenstein that would would have that, that authority. So if Rosenstein refuses to do that, then the president could fire Rosenstein, and then he would have to replace him and uh so the question would be who who would Rosenstein be replaced uh Rosenstein be replaced with and then he would order the president would order that person to fire Mueller what if that person refuses to do so and then it could continue uh, down the, the the chain of command in in that fashion uh or maybe the other option would be for the president to fire Sessions and then place uh, uh try to get a new attorney general in place that wouldn't be recused from the Russia investigation, but the problem with that is, is that it's going to be very difficult. I think if that occurs, if Sessions is fired, uh, to get a new, to get the Senate to confirm a new Attorney General, and, and he,
0: he did criticize Sessions uh, yesterday as well. And this, his his feelings about Sessions seem to seesaw back and forth. But oh we're out of time, Jimmy. I thank you so much for being on. That's Jimmy Garule, professor at Notre Dame Law School. Bayer is inching closer to completing a $66 billion acquisition of Monsanto. The last major hurdle is approval from U.S. antitrust regulators, and Bayer is close to getting that, according to a person familiar with the matter. Bayer has the green light from almost two-thirds of the jurisdictions it needs to sign off on the biggest transaction yet in the seeds and crop chemicals industry. Joining me is Bloomberg Intelligence Senior Litigation Analyst Jennifer Ree Jen, this deal has been about two years in the making. What have the Justice Department's
2: concerns been to slow it down? Well, you know, first of all, a lot of that time is just in the investigation of these deals, because this is a really complex industry. And they entered into this deal at a time when there was a lot of consolidation. If you remember, Dow and DuPont were merging, and ChemChina and Syngenta were merging. So it really takes a lot of time to weed through the issues. And these companies in particular, one buyer is stronger in chemicals, agricultural chemicals, and Monsanto stronger in agricultural seeds. And there are ways in which these products work together and, and can be actually even tied together in certain ways that I think that the Department of Justice needed to ensure that whatever they did here and whatever the remedy might be would, would fix any issues that might allow these companies to sort of unlawfully tie these products together. So
0: the Wall Street Journal first reported on the the possibility or the likelihood of approval from the US antitrust regulators. What are some of the agreements that seem to be in place to move the antitrust regulators to approve it?
2: You know, there's a lot happening here because the European regulators had already required almost all of Bayer's seed business to be divested. So, you know, pretty much practically eliminating that overlap. And I believe there was also um, some of their chemicals had to get chemical, agricultural chemicals needed to be divested too. Now, what the U.S. said is, look, perhaps in Dow and DuPont, what European regulators required was also good enough for us because this tends to be a global market. But in this case, the competitive dynamic is a little different in the U.S. because we do allow genetically modified seeds, whereas in a lot of countries in Europe, these are not allowed. So you've got a different dynamic there. And they needed to ensure that they had everything covered. And it looks like they are requiring the companies to sell more seed and and chemical assets, as well as possibly either sell or license digital farming uh, assets.
0: The Justice Department, we know, as we've talked about, the Justice Department is challenging the AT&T-Time Warner merger, and there's currently a trial before a judge in D.C. Can you tell about the Trump administration's approach to antitrust from looking at
2: these two deals? You know, we're beginning to a little bit. I mean, I think it's still early. But the thing that's really interesting is that when um, uh, President Trump was elected and started thinking about who he might put in place at the Department of Justice, and and the guy he put in, Macon rahim Head-up antitrust was kind of considered a Republican and a traditional Republican, and I think a lot of people thought it might bring back a time when it was a little bit more like what enforcement was for mergers under George Bush, a little easier, letting some of these deals go through, um, where where maybe the Democrats might not have. And what we're seeing is that not, it's not really the case. We're seeing tough enforcement here, with obviously with respect to AT and they're suing to block, and with respect to Bayer and Monsanto, they're looking for some really major remedies here. So what does that tell?
0: you about other mergers that are currently pending? You mentioned Sinclair Tribune, Mm -hmm. Aetna CVS, Cigna Express Scripts, Disney Fox.
2: Well, I think that they're all going to need to expect the same, that they're not just going to skate through, um, you know, on this sort of, uh, you know, laissez-faire attitude. It's not going to be that. They're going to get scrutinized carefully. They're going to have to, and they're going to have to remedy any possible harms. And and it's not necessarily going to be easy. And it's not going to be behavioral. Well, that's what it seems like. Now, if they're in front of the Department of Justice, it seems fairly clear that behavioral remedies aren't going to be accepted. This was one of the problems in the AT&T deal, and, and what they'll require is something structural. However, that's not necessarily the case, at least we don't know yet, before the FTC. The FTC has always preferred a structural remedy over a behavioral remedy, but they have accepted purely behavioral remedies in the past. Now, we're going to soon have an entirely new crop of FTC commissioners coming in, five actually, that will come in and the existing two will leave, and we'll see what they have to say about this and what they'll do going forward. You know, as you mentioned, there's been this wave of consolidation
0: in seed and crop chemical firms in the past three years. So, why, and farmers are concerned, they've mm-hmm. expressed concern, why allow even more consolidation?
2: Well, you know, the thing is, that's what the remedy is meant to do. When there is a remedy for one of these deals, it's meant to replace the competition that's been lost by virtue of the deal. And when you think of it that way, it's not really consolidation. And here, what has happened is that a company that wasn't in seeds before but wasn't chemicals, that's BASF, is going to be acquiring a lot of these assets, if not all of them, and becomes a vertically integrated large seed and chemical company akin to Dow DuPont and Bayer Monsanto so so in a way what they have done with this remedy is preserve the competition that is lost by virtue of the deal in most cases is eu approval stricter than us approval or vice versa you know, I think it's merger dependent, but in general, sort of in a macro sense, I think the European regulators are thought of as more stringent and more difficult and more demanding than the U.S. regulators. Um, but it remains to be seen because we are seeing, you know, a tough regulator right now in the Department of Justice with at least at and with this deal. So we'll see what happens going forward. Now, will they be able to close after they get U.S. approval? They're still waiting for some other approvals, but I think those will fall in line. I believe Russia and India, possibly a few others, but those will likely fall in line once this U.S. approval comes through. What happens in the U.S. is the Department of Justice will have to put out a package for public comment for 60 days, explaining what their concerns were here and why, what the remedy is and why it'll um, alleviate these concerns. After 60 days, a judge has to sign off on this and then then it becomes final. Let's jump over to the <laughs>
0: AT&T-Time Warner okay. merger for a moment. That trial is ongoing in D.C., and last I heard the judge asked both sides to cut down their witness lists.
2: <laughs> he seems to be very interested in moving this along quick, more quickly, and it has been very slow, starting with a snow delay in the very first week, which sort of put them behind. But he does realize that the parties are running up against a deadline and that they want to get his decision before June. And in order to to do that he's got a lot to get through and he said thinks his opinion's going to be 200 pages oh i'm not sure how he knows that now deal, probably. Well, and, <laughs>
0: but that's so, what he says so in about a minute what's the highlight of the testimony that you've uh heard there?
2: You know, I think to to me, there are two highlights here. One, the judge made a comment about this arbitration offer that um, AT&T has put on the table. It's similar to something that Comcast and NBCU had to do in order to get their deal through. And he was asking, the Department of Justice obviously thinks it's insufficient. And he was asking a witness who expressed some concerns over that arbitration. Could it be changed? How could it be approved that that you would accept it? So that means he's thinking about that. And I think that's a positive sign for AT&T. And uh, what was the second one? Well, the second one for me was the fact that um, the judge did allow some documents of um, AT&T DirecTV employees um, in which they expressed concern about when the Comcast NBCU uh, behavioral concessions were to expire, and they expressed concern about what those companies might do, which basically support the Department of Justice's case. So that was a score for the Department of Justice. Always great to have you here, Jen. Thank That's you. Jennifer
0: Ree, Senior Litigation Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Law Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to the show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and on Bloomberg.com slash I'm June Grosso. This is Bloomberg.